Hello everybody, a little bit of an awkward a little bit of an awkward start to today's episode because I thought we had the theme ready to go, but we do not have the theme ready to go because we had I had to kind of like clear a lot of space out on the computer uh, at the moment. So just to kind of like because we were getting the disc clogged up with a bunch of things to the point where it was pretty much just making the computer impossible to use. So um, yeah, that is what we are looking at at this point in time. Uh, but yeah, just want to let you know, because we do have a lot of great sh- stuff on the show today, because we're going to be talking about the latest with the coronavirus, including Dr. Anthony Fauci reassuring Congress that the U.S. will likely have a vaccine by the year's end or sometime in early 2021. Uh, also, we're talking about some other um, news with the coronavirus, including House Democrats comparing the outbreak in the U.S. to lower case lows in Europe and Asia, uh, the deal that some of the biggest big pharma companies have struck with the government for a vaccine and contract tracing in the U.S. is failing, undone by rising caseloads and lags in testing um, and really not much so far to do with the White House and the Democrats and jobless aid. So, uh, yeah, I do want to get we'll, we'll be talking about that story as well, because literally, literally, this is just you, people do not understand I think from other countries, how just much of a just joke our government is, both Democrats and Republicans, because with most of the country, like more than 50% of the country set to lose their main source of income now overnight with these unemployment benefits set to expire, I I believe, uh, very, very soon, if not not already, um, the Senate has now embarked on a three-day weekend. Uh, So that is another just insane story. Uh, But we start with the congressional testimony. So here is a little bit of a mashup of what we heard from major uh, health officials, including Anthony Fauci and Robert Redfield, head of the CDC, testifying before the House's Special Select Committee investigating the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus. So, yeah, they should definitely be investigating said response in a big way uh, because, yeah, it's not been good. Even though we shut down, even though it created a great deal of difficulty... We really functionally shut down only about 50% in the sense of the totality of the country. But we are cautiously optimistic that this will be successful because in the early studies in human, the phase one study, it clearly showed that individuals who were vaccinated mounted a neutralizing antibody response that was at least comparable and in many respects better than what we see in convalescent serum from individuals who have recovered from COVID-19. This virus is indiscriminate regarding whom and when it strikes. We continue to learn its characteristics, its behavior, and its effect on Americans across social economic spectrum. We are operating in a highly dynamic environment. We are adapting evidence-based strategies and pushing for innovative solutions to confront this unprecedented public health crisis. I am appealing to all Americans to be part of the public health solution. Wearing a simple mask properly, it's critical to limiting the transmission. Be smart about social distancing and being in crowded spaces. Stay six feet apart from others, possible, and be vigilant about hand hygiene. And together, we can turn the tide of this pandemic. This is just a small part of President Trump's plan to combat the coronavirus. Part of the plan, including 
and Steve Scalise there is the re- ranking member in this committee comically holding up kind of like a big stack of papers and saying, look, guys, there's so many papers. He must have done so much work. Like, yeah, that's just kind of just comical there. Um, but let's take a look at what he had to say about that. Just want to stop because this is this is a video, but you can't really see all the papers that he's holding up included stopping flights to China, which is Dr. Fauci tested, testified under oath, saved lives. That was President Trump's call. He got criticized from it. Much of this. And again, it's really so funny because like it's, they seem to be really the Republicans, the way they're responding to this, they really seem to be not really focused about the pandemic. Like they don't really seem to be focused about if you look at the way that they actually talk to and phrase these questions. Like it's not like, oh, we're trying to ask and get the most amount of information possible from these health professionals, from the top health professionals of the country about what we should be doing, uh, wh- how things are going and what, what, what do we do wrong. It's all about just like asking questions and presenting information in a way to make sure that Trump looks good. That is their number one priority in, a, in large parts of this point because like it's it, 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 it's really incredible um it's just yeah it's, it's quite a sight to behold so here is uh jim clyburn the chairman of this committee uh this subcommittee about uh he's going to be talking as well this is inconvenience to the public nobody feels comfortable getting up every morning and looking for a mask nobody feels comfortable riding around all day uh, with a mask it's inconvenient for everybody. So it's uncomfortable for everybody. But the plan must include guidance and support for state and local governments, health departments, schools, and community organizations. Yeah, so that is him talking about, yeah, well, we don't like to do it, but everybody's got to do it. Yeah, so he did say, just to give you some more information about the vaccine, that was kind of a general look you may have just at that what we see with the about the vaccine. I apologize for that. Um, so Fauci spoke at a hearing on the House Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus Crisis, a special creator, a panel created by Speaker Nancy Pelosi to oversee the Trump administration's coronavirus response, which is uh, probably long overdue. And we'll get into why such is a, it's such a big problem in our next two stories. Um, he said that more than 250,000 people have expressed interest in registering for coronavirus vaccine clinical trials and urged the public to sign up at coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org. His comments came as the French drug maker Sanofi announced that it had secured an agreement of up to $2.1 billion to supply the United States government with 100 million doses of its experimental coronavirus vaccine, the largest such deal announced to date. Uh, the arrangement brings Trump's administration investment in the coronavirus vaccine projects to more than $8 billion. This sprawling multi-agency effort is called Operation Warp Speed uh, and is placing bets on multiple vaccines and one vaccine candidate is already in third and fi- it's already in the fi- third and final phase of clinical trials says Dr. Fauci. So um, yeah, that that is kind of a show and really is what leading Dr. Fauci to say what is our title here in this broadcast uh, that a vaccine should be ready by early 2021. Uh, Fauci also cast doubt on a study touted by Trump and conservatives conducted by the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit that showed an apparent benefit for hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malaria drug that President Trump has touted as a COVID-19 treatment. Um, That study is a flawed study, said Fauci. Uh, Dr. Fauci was also joined by Admiral Brett P. Girard, the Assistant Secretary for Health, and Dr. Robert Redfield, the director for the Senators, Sen- director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, who told lawmakers he was not directly involved in final decision to strip his own agency of authority to collect coronavirus data from hospitals who 
now must report it to a central database in Washington. So that is, of course, making people a lot nervous because people are going to try to fudge it. Or to, like, we should we should be able to, uh, like, what 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 is the reason, um, um, what is the reason why? What is what is the push? What is the incentive? Uh, to hide information from or make it less accessible to the public when it comes to information about coronavirus. There's one of those really head, head-scratching head moves, to say the least, that the Trump administration has done during this crisis. Some of the House's fiercest members are on the panel, including Representative Jim Jordan, Ohio Republicans, who's been a regular skeptic of Fauci and public health mandates, including mask wearing. Fauci and Jordan had a testy exchange where Jordan pushed Fauci to say that the protests should be limited or shut down over coronavirus concerns in crowds. Um, I'm not going to opine on limiting anything, Fauci said, adding, I don't judge one crowd versus another crowd. Uh, yeah, so he really is, again, trying his best to say out of the political game, even though um, things are just like, they're not going to be, uh, Jordan's going to do his best to put it in the political game, political sphere of things. And honestly, I think, I mean, obviously Fauci has had some some mistakes, uh, some uh, what could be argued as mistakes in rhetoric. I mean, I think, him saying um, uh, that masks very, very early in the pandemic, like you shouldn't buy a mask early in the pandemic because I, I guess he could say it would be like you, the healthcare workers needed because it was a real struggle to get masks, to get PPE. Um, but yeah, if you what the, him hesitating on that was definitely not good, but I think that's also like explainable. Like he needed to, uh, and the healthcare workers needed it first, and then humans, regular civilians needed it. Healthcare workers needed it more at that time, but and that could be a reason for that rhetoric. But all in all, though, I think Fauci has done a relatively good job of staying out of the political and uh, not really looks like an idiot in, in putting his foot in his mouth. And a lot of other people, even people that are also been like admired by Democrats, supposedly on the kind of Democratic side of things, um, they have not come out as good. Uh, in 14 days, uh, United States cases are down 1% and deaths are up 57%. Cases are rising, fast, rising fastest in Hawaii, uh, Puerto Rico, um, Missouri, Alaska, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Kentucky, and Massachusetts. So, yeah, that is kind of what we see at the moment, and we are getting a good sense of the numbers here. Uh, meanwhile, House Democrats uh, on this panel, wasted little time in pointing out the caseload is much w- lower in Europe and Asia than in the United States. Clyburn, the number three House Democrat on the subcommittee, displayed uh, and chairman of the sub- subcommittee, displayed a chart showing the disparity. Pressed to explain, Fauci said countries in those parts of the world were more aggressive about shutting down as the pandemic raged. When they shut down, they shut down to the tune of 95%, getting their baseline down to tens or hundreds of cases a day. Um, by contrast, he said only about 50%, as you heard there in that clip from before, of the United States shut down, and the baseline of daily cases was much higher, as many as 20,000 new cases a day, even at its lowest. More recently, the U.S. has recorded as many as 70,000 new cases a day. Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, suggested the lack of social cohesion and political was to blame. To that, Fauci said, I think there is such a diversity of response in this country from different states. We did not have a unified response bringing everything down uh trump who is obviously watching fire back on twitter saying quote somebody please tell congressman clyburn who doesn't have a clue that the chart he put up indicating more cases for the u.s than europe is because we do much more testing than any other country in the world if we had more if we had no testing or bad tasting 
testing, uh, we would show very few cases. Yeah, they do have very few cases. Uh, they do have a lot more testing here in the United States. Uh, testing is very high, although ha- there have been occasional lags. Uh, but the thing is, the cases greatly outpace the testing, so it can't really truly be attributed to it in terms of increases in testing and increase of cases. Increase of cases, much, much bigger, which just shows you it's not just because of the testing. Uh, all right, here in other news, the French drug maker Sanofi said on Friday that it had secured an agreement of up to $2.1 billion to supply the U.S. federal government with 100 million doses of its, of its experimental coronavirus vaccine largest such deal announced to date. The arrangement with Sanofi and its partner, the British pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, brings the Trump administration's investment in this coronavirus vaccine projects to, again, up to more than $8 billion. Um, finally, contract tracing in the U.S. is failing, um, according to, again, a report from the New York Times. Um, contract tracing is a cornerstone of the public health arsenal to tamp down this coronavirus pandemic across the world and it's largely failed in the United States as the virus pervasiveness and major lags in testing have rendered the system almost pointless. In some regions, large parts of the population have refused to participate or cannot even be located, further hampering healthcare workers. In Arizona's most populous region, for example, the virus is so ubiquitous that contract tracers have been unable to reach a fraction of those infected. In Austin, Texas, the story is much of the same. Cities in Florida and other state where cases are surging have largely given up on tracking cases even even just tracking cases, which is uh, kind of insane. Things are equally dismal in California and New York City's tracing program. Workers complain of crippling communication and training problems. We are not doing it to the level or extent it should be done since Stephen Adler, mayor of Austin, echoing the view of many city and state leaders. All right, here's another, here's another very fun one. Uh, Senate has now decided to depart for a three-day weekend as unemployment benefits are about to expire for... 30 million people. Um, Republican-controlled U.S. Senate has adjourned for a three-day weekend as enhanced unemployment payments are officially set to lapse this Friday, guaranteeing today, um, guaranteeing that tens of millions of Americans will see their incomes drop 50 to 75 percent with another, again, another rent payment due in 24 hours. Yeah, that just shows you the insane lack of support that um, is being given to most Americans here in such a time of crisis uh, by their government. And it doesn't really seem like, again, most of people care. Since departure followed a long day of jockeying and blame hurling on the floor Thursday, that only failed to produce a solution for the nearly 30 million Americans who for months have relied on the $600 per week unemployment insurance to boost uh, uh, un boost to meet basic needs as the economy remains in deep recession. The chamber is not set to reconvene until 3 p.m. on Monday. Just so we're clear, tweeted economist Robert Reich, more than 25 million unemployed Americans are set to lose their extra unemployment benefits and the Senate just left for a three-day weekend. Republicans have lost the right to govern. Just, yeah, again, absolutely. This is, this is really why. This, I think, more than anything, could be... Uh, Best summed up as why people hate the government. Because they're going off, again, on a three-day weekend while people, a good portion of the country, is set to see their income uh, be sliced in half or cut by even 75% with another rent payment due. uh, As, again, it's about to be August already. Can you believe it? um, In 24 hours. Like, it is insane. People, like, we, so far, we have avoided, like, absolute, like, uh, economic calamity, like 
in a way that not not to say that we haven't really avoided it. We're kind of in kind of a slow motion cl- crash where there's kind of weak stop gap measure after weak stop gap measure after weak stop gap measure. And I mean, most people will tell you, most like economists and most even Republican governors will tell you, um, or and just Republican uh, economists, people, people who are reasonable, but maybe tend to lean more to the right. Or main reason why uh, consumer spending and things, just stuff like that, isn't totally cratered is because people are getting unemployment insurance, and that is helping them in such a big way. And that, like, that's just foundational, really, to the continuation of the economy. Like, that, it's so so important. Like, just give people, like, people. When again, may, maybe they don't even care about like the 25 billion Americans who are unemployed at this point. Like, maybe I'm, I'm sure they really, in the heart of hearts, do not care uh, about what's happened to them. They care about again keep, keeping the economy going, keeping things running, keeping just things on track, and not having mass evictions, not making it look really, really bad. And when I say look really, really bad, of course it is really, really bad, and it does look really, really bad. But when I say it looks really bad, I mean like people being forced out of their homes on the streets. Uh, people being uh, like just dragged out, like that's what I picture. Just videos of just absolute economic squalor, and we're getting there. We literally are. We are getting there. There are videos of protesters standing outside court courthouses, physically blocking these landlords from getting into the court to try and evict their tenants uh, because they haven't obviously paid rent because they're freaking unemployed. So it is like that is really is what shows you on Thursday here uh, that things are just so so deeply broken. And they're only going to break more. Uh, Ron Johnson attempted to pass by unanimous consent legislation that would give states an option to either pay out a federally funded 2000 per week UI boost or implement a formula that would replace two-thirds of a workers' uh, previous wages. Um, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon called Johnson's proposal, quote, so heartless, even Cruella DeVille would not endorse it. Senator Minority Leader Chuck, uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer blocked the passage of Johnson's legislation, which would have announced amounted to a, a sixteen thousand uh, or sixteen hundred dollar per month drop in benefits for millions of Americans, and subsequently attempted to pass the Heroes Act, a sprawling legislative package approved by Democrats in the House in May that would extend the weekly six hundred dollar UI boost through January of next year. And then Johnson blocked that bill later. Uh, Republican Senator of Arizona Mark, Martha McSally tried to pass a one-week extension of the $600 boost, but Schumer rejected dismissing the effort as clearly a stunt. Washington Post Jeff Sine noted on Twitter that it would likely have taken about two weeks for the one-week payment to actually reach people. Uh, so either, either way, people are, for these next two weeks, people are going to be kind of hanging out in a limbo there, and they're really, really going to get screwed, which is scary because this stuff, it's, it's going away. There's nothing as done. Nothing's being done about it, and people right now, a good portion of the country are literally depending on it to put food on their family's tables and to keep themselves in their homes. Again, as this kind of eviction moratorium stuff is kind of, again, also hanging on the edge, and the money that people have is still not getting any uh, better. Like the, The income for these unemployed people isn't really changing. The economic situation isn't improving. It It's really, really bleak. Uh, to say the least. Tens of millions of Americans 
will go weeks without federal jobless leave because Congress has not renewed the benefits in time for overwhelmed state unemployment systems to adjust their computers. State offices will need weeks to reprogram their systems to account for an extension of the 600 weekly federal payments that expire on Saturday or any changes that Congress makes to the benefit amount or eligibility rules. So pretty much it's already done. In fact, they passed that. They adjourned the everything in the Senate. Um, it's already done. Americans are set to really... Like things are economically, things are going to get into a whole new layer of hell at this point uh, because they have not done this. And it's really, really scary. It really is. Um, Don Bayer, a Virginia representative, uh, Democrat, he says, as we have warned for weeks, the Senate needed to pass an extension. Uh, a week ago to avoid a lapse in the expanded $600 per week unemployment benefits. Mitch McConnell's failure to act already sealed those lapse and have measures and gimmicks from the White House cannot do it. And again, they are already going to see lapse in unemployment benefits regardless if the GOP agrees to an extension of the $600 in coming hours. Most state systems will not be able to program an extension in time. That's a tweet there from Rebecca Rainey. And of course, they didn't, so things are going to be much, much worse for much, much longer. Because, guys, they're get, at least they're getting back at Monday on Monday at 3 p.m., so it's fine. They'll, once they get back, once they go out for their three-day weekend, they'll just be out. They'll be, uh, they'll be chilling. They'll get right back at it, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, yeah, indefensible and disgusting, says Ryan Thomas, the National Press Secretary for Stand Up America, the advocacy group. Um. Yeah, so the Senate has adjourned until Monday afternoon with no action on coronavirus relief. Federal employment benefits will expire tomorrow. Very, very scary economic situation. A lot of people are going to find themselves in. All right. We will get right back to some very, very important stories coming up. Just keep listening. It's the Spencer Walsh Radio Network. We are talking today a lot about the coronavirus. Uh, we're talking about how Derek, Jared Kushner is being called to resign over a staggering level of depravity that put politics before public health. So, yeah, and he says, uh, we'll also be talking about Bolivia and the NBA coming back. Uh, but first, we start talking about this. In the wake of the devastating new reporting by Vanity Fair, a chorus of voices called for the immediate resignation of Jared Kushner, a top White House advisor and son-in-law of President Donald Trump, for disastrous and deadly failures by the administration that appear to have, been, appear to have put the political desires of the president above the public health needs of the American people. And I think, like, if you don't think we're going to see, like, a thousand more stories like this in the years following, probably this, when, when things and everything kind of hopefully blows over and... Again, that, of course, comes to the assumption that things don't just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse until this planet finally explodes into a, a fiery ball and we're all we're all done for. Uh, but we are going to find out so many awful things that Trump did here and his associates did here. And this seems to be just one of them. Um, the 
Vanity Fair article, what it does is it takes an exhaustive look at decisions made and actions taken by a secretive task force led by Kushner that was charged with implementing an aggressive, coordinated national COVID-19 response, which is exactly literally what they did not do. It was not aggressive. It was definitely not coordinated. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, just look at the look at the hotspots in the country right now. It was not national. Um, so that's kind of ironic. Uh, they included federal testing and a regime that would help sp- stop the spread or stem the spread of the virus. With the investigation uncovered, according to reporter Catherine Eban, was an ultimately aborted plan for a far-reaching national testing strategy with deliberative process that began not with public health experts, but with bankers and billionaires. While the plan itself was divided by the team Kushner put together, it was characterized as imperfect, but a starting point. Uh, the most shocking revelations have to do with why the strategy, which members of the unit believed would head straight to Trump's desk and the B-roll that nationwide with large fanfare in early April, seemed to suddenly disappear like poof into thin air. So it looks like, again, they actually ended up having uh, a national like policy plan here. Like they, like it, it's, they had something ironed out. But as you can see, kind of life, life got in the way here. So, yeah. As Eban reports, the prospect of launching a large, uh, large-scale national plan was losing favor, said one public health expert in frequent contact with the White House official coronavirus task force. Most troubling of all, perhaps, was a sentiment the expert said that a, uh, a member of Kushner's team expressed that because the virus hit, had hit blue states the hardest, a national plan was unnecessary and would not make sense politically. The political folks believe that became uh, that because it was going to be relegated to democratic states, they said they could blame those governors. And again, now it's clearly not relegated to democratic states. Democratic states are doing better now uh, after New York's big uh, screw up in uh, March and April. Uh, now, mostly Republican states are doing awfully right now. Um, but here's the logic. This was the plan. The political folks, and this is a direct quote, the political folks believe that because it was going to be relegated to democratic states, they could blame those governors, and that would be, in fact, an effective political strategy. So there was this like, yeah, it'll only be in the democratic states, we can just say Andrew Cuomo sucks, and then, since it won't ever, ever go to the rest of the country, um, we can just uh, blame Democrats and move on. Awesome. That logic, again, may have swayed Kushner. It was very clear that Jared was ultimately the decision maker as to what plan was going to come out. And again, that is the most tantalizing, the most frustrating part of this whole situation. By all accounts, by all intents and purposes, they actually had a national plan in place to deal with this situation. Like, they actually had a a national testing regime, uh, which probably would have led to a better contact in uh, test and trace program like we just talked about. Um, But they didn't. They aborted it, and it was for, again, purely political purposes. This, I think this is going to be probably the overarching story of how the White House really failed in this response and how it was largely motivated uh, political purposes and to appease kind of bankers and billionaires. Um, but there's going to be, again, a bunch of little other tidbits that are just coming here. This is going to be absolutely enraging uh, when we look at, the, again, the number of Americans that have died, which is almost certainly now going to exceed like 200,000 when this thing uh, is over. On April 27th, uh, Trump stepped to the podium in coronavirus, uh, uh, sorry, a podium in the Rose Garden, flanked by members of the coronavirus task force and leaders of America's big commercial testing laboratories, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, and finally announced a testing plan, which almost bore no resemblance to the one that had been forged in late March, which was supposed to be, again, rolled out in early April to, quote, large fanfare. Um, 
It had shifted the problem of diagnostic testing almost entirely to individual states. While the veracity of such claims cannot be verified and Kushner refused to answer a detailed set of question or to be interviewed by Vanity Fair. Again, that, that is, the, again, reporting there from Vanity Fair. Um, implications of such decisions speak for themselves and drew immediate outrage and a demand for accountability. Um, yeah, it is just an absolutely insane story. Um, imagine the administration had intel on an imminent terrorist attack that would kill over 100,000 people and chose to do nothing because it politically easier. Tweeted Matt Dust, the foreign policy uh, advisor for Bernie Sanders on his personal account. That's what we have here. We need to be talking about accountability for all of it. And that is really account- accountability is what needs to happen. So uh, public citizen advocacy group says, quote, holy hell. Jared Kushner reportedly abandoned a national testing plan because of political advantages to sit back and let blue states be eviscerated by the virus. The corruption and depravity is simply staggering. Kushner needs to resign now. Um, yeah, it is just really it's it's hard to it's hard to even comprehend. It's hard to even wrap your mind around. They had this plan right. Uh, ironed out. They weren't as like entirely co- incompetent as we thought they were. Like they they knew what to do. They had a general, if somewhat vague, idea of what was needed to be done to can- contain this pandemic. But they abandoned it because they thought it would only hit blue states, and it would be politically easier to just blame the Democratic governors for the whole crisis. I mean, yeah, it's it's mind blowing. If anything close to this is true, there needs to be some serious accountability, and we will not get it in at least the next what is it now ninety four three days until the election. Oh, it's it's crazy. All right, so we're talking about now next uh, kind of switching stories here. Thousands of Bolivians have taken to the streets this week in mass demonstrations and marches against the coup government's decision to postpone the country's presidential election until October, further extending the brutal reign of unelected right-wing President Janine Añez as the coronavirus continues to ravage the Latin American nation. So pretty much getting a little bit of maybe uh, inspiring Trump's insane tweet yesterday about maybe we should delay the election. The, the uh, elections. Janine Añez, again, setting the coronavirus pandemic, actually trying to do that here. The presidential contest was uh, originally scheduled to be held on September 6th, but Bolivia's Supreme Electoral Tribunal, headed by Añez appointee Salvador Romero, opted last week to push the election back October 18th, setting COVID-19 fears. Recent polling uh, shows Añez trailing both Movement for Socialism candidate Luis Arce and conservative Carlos Mesa. So yeah, pretty much what would happen, like this this is really what we did. For those of you who are, need a little bit of a refresher, um, I believe we did an episode of Red Alert about that. You can find that up uh, on our YouTube. But if you have any kind of um, memory, got a little bit of a refresher back to last year, what we did is there was uh, a president who is was pretty popular so like uh, social social democrat uh evo morales who tried to do some kind of redistribution stuff uh tried to really uh, actually was really really effective in decreasing poverty um income inequality and actually making bolivia a slightly less awful place to live i don't know he actually, he, he made a big dent and a lot of the problems that were there through kind of social democratic reforms he decided to run for i believe it was a fourth term he got past the original 
um, or what, 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 what I think the way the election worked was now, if I remember correctly, was if you get past a certain point, I believe a majority in the first round, you automatically win. And the Organization of American States, which was pretty much a U.S. kind of front group, was um, w- declared the election uh, suspicious, declared the results possibly fraudulent in a review um, because of the fact that uh, there's a really kind of stupid um, explanation was that Morales' vote total surged way too dramatically. Like, he got too many votes at once for it to be realistic. But really what was happening was just the... uh, It was kind of near the end, and the rural poor voters were finally being accounted, and they're more likely to support Morales being poorer workers. Um, And that was why he won, and he got passed the need for a second round. And what happened was then the OAS, again, kind of an American front group uh, in uh, South America, was like, yeah, you know what? This election was illegitimate. It was illegitimate. It was fake. We need to to do it again. Uh, And all of a sudden, right-wing militia groups, who knows it? Who knows really what, who who, who they were backed by? Uh, Who knows who's really funding them. We, we still really don't know that. There's still open questions as to who is the group that really pushed Morales' party out of power. But uh, MAS, which is Morales' party, the Movement for Socialism, uh, members were beaten. Uh, his friends and family were uh, attacked, both physically, verbally, online, all that kind of stuff. Morales was forced to flee the country along with a lot of his political associates, friends and family, stuff like that. And again, now Anyas has taken over since, I, get, I believe, around November of last year. Uh, and still remains in power to this day. Now has uh, pushed the election back, which is awesome. And again, oh, of course, I forgot. Um, there has been other reviews, including a report by the New York Times that was like, yeah, that election was completely accurate. So the whole impetus for the coup in the first place was totally BS. But um, there was another possible impetus for the coup that we saw uh, when Elon Musk responded because obviously Libya has and is really starting to assert itself in in the global market because of the fact it has a lot of lithium. Lithium, huge part in factoring, uh, of course, producing electrical cars, lithium batteries, stuff like that. And US, maybe we'd like a little bit of lithium, maybe as a treat. So, So what we decided to do is pretty much say an election was fake, inspire, and that's a vague word on purpose, uh, inspire um, overthrowing a democratically elected government, uh, democratically, elected, democratically elected leader, someone who's pr- pretty popular in Bolivia in and of itself, uh, all because of pretty much lithium. As Elon Musk, if you look at his Twitter, he was like, as someone um, where he was like, yeah, we shouldn't do a new stimulus package. It wouldn't be in the best interest of the people. Um, this guy was like, well, maybe doing a coup in Bolivia wasn't for the best interest of the people. And Elon Musk again responds, we will coup whoever we want. Deal with it. Yeah, deal with it. That's that's what we should tell the Bolivian people when the government they elected is uh, overthrown. So by really just people who aren't even in any way associated with the country. Uh, on Tuesday, though, at least 5,000 Bolivians took part in a massive demonstration in El Alto, organized by the Bolivian Workers Center, the country's largest trade union federation. Uh, the election date of September 6th must be respected, said mining leader Lucio Padilla. Uh, our obligation is to defend democracy. 
Bolivian unions are threatening to launch a general strike. Let's go. How about that? If the tribunal refuses to allow the elections to take place on September 6th, if originally scheduled, if the council is not heard, uh, says COBE Secretary Juan Carlos Haraccia, the indefinite general strike begins. So really what they're trying to do is bring the country to the halt because of the fact there is no elections. Uh, Road blockades, general strikes, it could get serious. So here is um, the labor leader, uh, Juan Carlos Huracia, uh, Huraci, talking to a crowd. In, it is in Spanish, but it's cool to hear someone getting everybody hyped up, getting ready for a general strike. And of course, they're probably the most colorful group of labor protesters ever because it kind of the indigenous worker symbol is literally a rainbow flag. Uh, so they look really kind of awesome out there. Bolivian journalist Olivia Vargas. Uh, Oliver Vargas, sorry, wrote in the Socialist Magazine Tribune on Tuesday that while October 18th is a new date for the Bolivian presidential con- um, contest, civil society has lost faith. It will be respected. We're going to be following this story as, of course, we here at SWN are committed to bringing you not just what happens in the United States, uh, but what the United States is doing to other countries around it and this certainly falls under that second category, as well as we'll also bring you a little bit of other non-U.S.-weighted international news as well. But I think it's very, very important to look at what the U.S. does and the impact that our direct actions are having on other people the world over. So with that said, we're talking about the NBA next, so don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for listening to programming from the Spencer Walsh Radio Network. It really means a lot. So if you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting us by checking out our merch store available on speaker.com slash TSWS. The link for it is there. Also, if you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a review on wherever or however you listen. You can do it on Spreaker by leaving a positive comment and, of course, on iTunes by rating and reviewing us five stars and on whatever possible program or site that you listen to SWRN on, leave a nice review, leave a good comment, let us know your feedback. And also, if it's negative too, I always welcome constructive feedback. Thank you so much for listening. And now let's get back to your show. Thank you so much again for tuning in to Newsflash. Really, really appreciate it. We got, again, of course, a new episode of Uncultured tonight. That's going to be very, very special. We'll tell you about it uh, after this story. But we're talking as well about the NBA returning a new piece in current affairs about that by Nick Slater. We're going to be giving you the skinny on what went on last night. Some Two very good games. But uh, should they be back? Is it safe? Is it right? Personally, I think so. But... This is going to be a less optimistic, um, shall we say, view on that that we're going to see right here. So, yeah, uh, the NBA. So back in mid-March, one of the United States' first signs of the novel coronavirus was some serious shit. It came after the NBA announced the suspension of its season, which is true. I, I literally remember exactly where I was, which was in my mom's car, uh, and we were driving when we were like, yeah, 
NBA just shut down the entire season. Uh, yeah, American Pro Sports don't shut down unless ownership decides that continuing play would present an unacceptable financial risk, whether it entails splitting profits more evenly with players or, in this case, causing math death among sports fans. Uh, the 2019-2020 NBA season existed in limbo for over three and a half months, but this week it's finally coming back after a long, dreary basketball-free journey into the maw of the human soul. Amazing will happen once again. Of course, yeah, that's a line from one of the uh, the hype ads that we see uh, from the with the the piano uh, and the. The, trying to get you in in your feels again about sports. Finally, there's light at the her, at the end of the hermetically sealed COVID nineteen quarantine tunnel. Although the NBA's eight remaining seeding games uh, in the ensuing playoffs will be played sans fans in the dystopian Disney World bubble, it's a very very dystopian situation. At least they're still going to be played. At least there's the promise of something resembling some sense of normalcy. Sports matter in our society. They bring people together when they need it most, as Adam Silver said. Uh, Everything about American life might seem to be polarized right now, but at least we can come together to hate James Harden and his McKinsey-optimized shot selection. You can make a reasonable argument the NBA's return is quite exciting news. It's not the first sport to resume action. The Spanish Football League, La Liga, Major League Baseball, and the WNBA are just a few of the league's to get the jump on the NBA in terms of returning. But the NBA is the League of America's future and one really with its finger on the national pulse in a way that few other and really no other league has. Like they're the they're the league of kind of the the cities of America, the really yeah, the cities of America and the suburbs really of America. Uh not they're not very big in like rural areas, but they're much more kind of the younger league. They're a more diverse league. They're a more, I would argue, exciting league. So it, it really was kind of cool to have LeBron come back last night, Zion playing a little bit. Uh, that was a lot of fun. But unlike some sports, the NBA's plan to prevent athletes from getting sick seems like a non-terrible one, although the WNBA's might be a little bit better. But uh, if a pro basketball, pro baseball's return is a case study on how to really screw up a societal reopening pro basketball is proof that sometimes people in charge are not complete idiots and actually running things competently and not having three teams getting the coronavirus right now it's like the cardinals marlins phillies they're all getting it now over in baseball uh which is really screwing up the season but the nba getting well together in one bubble seems to be working right uh pretty pretty good for now um, let's take to sports for a second. The NBA means something to millions of Americans, many of whom are struggling to even keep a roof over their heads right now. So it means something when the NBA comes back. Being able to zone out and watch a few hours of the world's best basketball could be the only bright spot in some people's otherwise gloom-filled lives. Um, again, this is Nick Slater writing in Current Affairs. Um, I have written about how basketball saved my life, and in the praise of frivolous diversions in general... Uh, so I'm sympathetic to this line of reasoning. I love watching, talking, and reading about the NBA, even though my hometown, Minnesota Timberwolves, have been moldy trash cheese for almost the entirety of my time on Earth. Sports do matter to people's lives. Ever since the season was suspended, there's been a gaping NBA-shaped hole in my consciousness. I've missed it a lot. Yet it's very, very hard to care about the NBA's return. Forget there's a blatant attempt by the league's billionaires to owners to recoup some of the money they lost due to canceled home games and TV deals over their Odell financial simpletons might wonder why those owners couldn't just swallow a year of losses since swiftly appreciating NBA franchises are essentially a license to print money with the NBA uh, average team being worth about $2.12 billion, up from $369 million in 2010, so a huge increase over the last decade. Forget about the NBA restart and how it's been criticized as a way 
uh, has forget that the NBA restart has also been criticized as a way to channel anger about police brutality and racial injustice into more corporate friendly expressions and the league's promises uh, to the contrary are blind by the fact that the main steps to center social justice consists of literally league approved jersey messages and a pledge to paint Black Lives Matter on the court a la DC Mayor Muriel, Bla- Muriel Bowser. And honestly, I think what this article really understands misunderstands is like that is not the role of sports. Like Really, the reason why I watch sports is because it is, like, it makes you, I think it really makes you feel something. Like, the reason why I like politics is, like, the reason why I'm drawn, like, and keep going back again to politics because I believe it's important. And I personally feel it's a deep passion for issues, for things I want to see done, uh, and for just at least trying to, in my view, make the world a better place and, and doing what I think is necessary and what I think is right to make the world a better place. Um, and the reason why I like sports is because I, it really nothing to do with that, but like the exciting games and really a, a basketball game where you got LeBron and AD, um, Anthony Davis on one side, Kawhi and Paul George on the other side, two, two to six points difference within the last three minutes of the fourth quarter. Like anything could happen there. And again, you can get all this stuff from, from wherever you want. Like, you can get your social justice fix or lack thereof whenever you want. I mean, it's like, it's, again, if if you look past it, if you, like, actually care about sports, I think, honestly, I think it's really quite easy to look past the fact that there's Black Lives Matter painted on the court, the fact that uh, there are some social justice statements on the jerseys, because of the fact that there, there's basketball being played. There is basketball being played. If you are having trouble looking past like the politics of, of the NBA or the politics of maybe the NHL or whatever, like it is like I, I don't think I think that's a you problem. I really think that's a you problem. And I don't go to the NBA for my anti racism. I don't think anybody should go to the NBA for their anti-racism because they're they're not built to provide it. Um, if they express solidarity, I think that's nice in kind of a in kind of a semi-passe way, kind of a not really provocative way. I think that's fine. I think that's great. But people are like, oh, the NBA is not like a social justice league. This guy's like, oh, we're, we're, it's kind of a corporate friendly setting. Uh, of course, it's a corporate friendly setting. Like it's, it's a billion dollars, uh, billions of billions of dollars running through that league. Like they're not going to be. Like Malcolm X over here, like it's just not the way it's gonna work. But it's still, I think if they're able to keep people like help healthy, if they're able to keep people, uh, their fan or not the fans, but the players healthy, like everyone around there healthy. I mean, I think it's really a distraction that I think a lot of people need in the country right now. It can be hard for some people to really put things past them. At the point, and I think you can make a kind of legit argument that maybe they shouldn't be put past. Like you, they shouldn't be um, looked past, and there's issues that need to be addressed. Like, but again, there's a time and place for that, and there's a time and place to just sit back, relax, and and watch sports, which is perfectly fine as well. So, I think all in all, sports are a good thing. Sure, they can kind of like distract people from the the issues at hand, but sometimes there's a good re- there. It's it's good for that. Like you can't always be out in the streets. You can't always be out protesting, and and that's just it's sometimes just the way it is. Like you need you need a place to chill, need a place to relax. Uh, but there's always time to hit the streets.
during the day and get back for Lakers Clippers at night. Uh, all right, so that's all, all the time we got for you today. That is our show. Um, we have. I just want to tell you here really, really quickly about our show, Uncultured Tonight. What we got coming for you? Ready for war, Joe? Join us tonight for a live episode of Uncultured. We're going to be telling you the stories and the sounds of Rap School Age. It's the 1990s. Uncultured spins the 90s tonight on SWRN. Tune in. Be there. We're giving you all the hottest artists, whether it be Biggie, Tupac, Big Pun, Mob Deep, Wu-Tang Clan. We got everything. So send in those requests. When it's time later tonight, we'll play. We'll give you if you have got some good '90s requests, we'll play those as well. We're, we're going to give you '90s mixes. We're going to be ripping some of the biggest, best moments of the era. It's '90s night tonight on Uncultured. Join us on SWRN. <laughs>